amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Wednesday, July the 19th, 2023. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald Leader. Your reader for today is Mary Sue Hoskins. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day. Today's word is dauntless. This is the meaning of the word dauntless. Someone or something described as dauntless is incapable of being intimidated or subdued. Or, in other words, fearless. Here's an example of the word dauntless used in a sentence. With dauntless persistence, the ship's crew navigated the vessel through the unexpected storm, escaping with minimal damage and no casualties. Dauntless. We'll turn now to the front page of today's New York Times. These are the articles on the digital edition of today's front page. Trump says he's target in special counsel's investigation into January 6th. Michigan charges 16 in false elector scheme to overturn Trump's 2020 loss. Phoenix breaks heat records set in 1974. A current war collides with the past, remnants of World War II in Ukraine. Judges' rebuke of New York City signals potential of Rikers' takeover. Biden, caught in political cross-currents, navigates U.S.-Israel relationship. And finally, in Gilgo Beach case, a wife nearby, but apparently unknowing. So now to the lead article. Trump says he's target in special counsel's investigation into January the 6th. Former President Donald J. Trump has been informed that he could soon face federal indictment for his efforts to hold on to power after his 2020 election loss, potentially adding to the remarkable array of criminal charges and other legal troubles facing him, even as he campaigns to return to the White House. Mr. Trump was informed by his lawyers on Sunday that he had received a so-called target letter from Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating his attempts to reverse his defeat at the polls. Mr. Trump and other people familiar with the matter said on Tuesday, Prosecutors use target letters to tell potential defendants that investigators have evidence tying them to crimes and that they could be subject to indictment. Deranged Jack Smith sent Mr. Trump a letter on Sunday night informing him he was a target of the January 6th grand jury investigation, Mr. Trump said in a post on his social media platform. Such a letter, 
almost always means an arrest and indictment, wrote Mr. Trump, whose campaign is rooted in accusations of political persecution and a promise to purge the Justice Department and Federal Bureau of Investigation of personnel he sees as hostile to him and his agenda. Mr. Smith's spokesman had no comment. An indictment of Mr. Trump would be the second brought by Mr. Smith, who is also prosecuting the former president for risking national security secrets by taking classified documents from the White House and for obstructing the government's efforts to reclaim the material. Mr. Trump is also under indictment in Manhattan on charges related to hush money payments to a porn star before the 2016 election. And he faces the likelihood of charges from the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, who has been conducting a wide-ranging inquiry into Mr. Trump's attempts to reverse his 2020 election loss in that state. The target letter cited three statutes that could be applied in a prosecution of Mr. Trump by Mr. Smith's team, a person briefed on the matter said. They include a potential charge of conspiracy to defraud the United States and a broad charge related to a violation of rights, the person said. Whether Mr. Smith and his prosecutors will choose to charge Mr. Trump on any or all of those statutes remains unclear, but they appear to have assembled evidence about an array of tactics that Mr. Trump and his allies used to try to stave off his election defeat. Those efforts included assembling slates of so-called fake electors from swing states that Mr. Trump lost, pressuring state officials to block or delay Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s victories seeking to persuade Vice President Mike Pence to impede congressional certification of the Electoral College outcome, raising money based on false claims of election fraud, and rallying supporters to come to Washington and march on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. It also remains unknown whether others might be charged along with Mr. Trump. Several of his closest allies during his efforts to remain in office, including Rudolph W. Giuliani, who was serving as his personal lawyer, and John Eastman, who promoted the idea that Mr. Pence could keep Congress from certifying Mr. Biden's victory, said through their lawyers that they had not received target letters. Just hours after Mr. Trump disclosed his receipt of the target letter, the Michigan Attorney General announced felony state charges against 16 people for their involvement in an attempt to overturn Mr. Biden's victory in the state by convening a slate of pro-Trump electors. The news of another potential indictment of Mr. Trump underscored the stakes of an intensifying legal and political battle whose consequences are both incalculable and unpredictable. Mr. Trump remains a dominant front-runner for the Republican presidential nomination in spite of, or to some degree because of, the growing list of charges and potential charges against him. His campaign strategy has been to embrace the investigations as evidence of a plot by a Democratic administration to deny him and his supporters a victory in 2024, a message that continues to resonate among his followers. 
He was raising money off news of the target letter within hours of disclosing that he had received it. But for Mr. Trump, the stakes are deeply personal, given the serious threat that he could face prison time if convicted in one or more of the cases. In that sense, a winning campaign and the power to make at least the federal cases go away by pardoning himself or directing his Justice Department to dismiss them is also a battle for his liberty. At a Fox News town hall in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on Tuesday night, the host, Sean Hannity, asked Mr. Trump how he appeared unbothered by the investigations. But Mr. Trump pushed back. It bothers me, Mr. Trump said. He accused the Biden administration of trying to intimidate him, but said, they don't frighten us. Mr. Trump spent much of Tuesday promoting a scorched-earth political strategy, consulting with allies in Washington, including Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Representative Elise Stefanik, a New York Republican and one-time critic who has become one of his staunchest defenders. Mr. Trump urged Ms. Stefanik to go on, def- on offense during a lengthy call from his golf club in Bessminster, New Jersey, according to a person with knowledge of the conversation. His main rival at the moment for the Republican nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, said Mr. Trump was a victim of the politicization of the Justice Department, continuing a pattern in which prominent figures in the party remain leery of criticizing him and drawing the ire of his supporters. At least two grand juries in Washington have been hearing matters related to Mr. Trump's efforts to stay in office. A trial, if it comes to that, would likely be held in federal district court in Washington, where many of the January 6 rioters and leaders of the two far-right groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, have been prosecuted. Based on the outcomes of those trials, the jury pool in Washington would likely be less favorable to the former president than the one that would be impaneled from a largely pro-Trump region around Fort Pierce, Florida, where the classified documents trial is currently scheduled to take place. Two of Mr. Trump's lawyers, Todd Blanche and Christopher M. Keese, briefly mentioned the new target letter at a pre-trial hearing in Florida on Tuesday on the documents case. While Mr. Keese and Mr. Blanche have no details about what the letter said, they used it to argue that Mr. Trump was essentially being besieged by prosecutors and that the trial in the classified documents case should be delayed until after the 2024 election. In disclosing that he had received the target letter, Mr. Trump said he was given four days to testify before a grand jury if he chooses. He is expected to decline. The timetable suggested by the letter suggests that he will not be charged this week, according to people familiar with the situation. Fonnie T. Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, who has pressed ahead with her own investigation of Mr. Trump and his allies, could bring charges as early as next month. If she were to proceed first, that could complicate Mr. Smith's case. Accounts of witnesses called to testify both cases 
could vary slightly, seeding doubts about their testimony, for instance, which might explain why Mr. Smith is moving fast, according to former federal prosecutors. Federal investigators were slow to begin investigating all the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, overwhelmed with prosecuting the hundreds of rioters who illegally entered the Capitol. The initial plan for investigating the attack's planners, drafted by the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Washington and later adopted by Attorney General Merrick B. Garland, did not include any explicit reference to the former president. The FBI took a similar tack. However, in the months leading up to Mr. Smith's appointment as a special counsel last fall, there were strong indications that federal prosecutors were pivoting to examine whether Mr. Trump and his allies may have committed crimes. The FBI's Washington field office opened an investigation in April 2022 into electors who pledged fealty to Mr. Trump in states he had lost. Earlier, the authorities had seized the cell phones of Mr. Eastman, a legal architect of Mr. Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss, and Jeffrey Clark, a lawyer whom Mr. Trump had tried to install as the acting attorney general. Among the crimes that prosecutors and agents intended to investigate were mail and wire fraud, conspiracy and obstruction of an official proceeding before Congress. By late last year, the various investigations were brought under Mr. Smith, who moved quickly with a flurry of activity, including subpoenas and witness interviews. Mr. Smith and his team do not appear to be done. A spokesman for former Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona said that Mr. Smith's team reached out to him after the Washington Post reported that Mr. Trump had tasked Mr. Pence with pressuring Mr. Ducey to overturn Mr. Biden's narrow victory there. The spokesman said that Mr. Ducey will do the right thing and that he had done so since the election. It was unclear whether the contact was to request a voluntary interview by Mr. Ducey or a grand jury appearance. Mr. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, appeared before one of the grand juries in June, according to people familiar with his appearance. Mr. Giuliani had a recent interview with prosecutors. We'll move now to the next article on the front page, which is related uh, to the last one. Michigan charges. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 
16 in false elector scheme to overturn Trump's 2020 loss. The Michigan Attorney General announced felony charges on Tuesday against 16 Republicans for falsely portraying themselves as electors from the state in an effort to overturn Donald J. Trump's 2020 defeat there. Each of the defendants was charged with eight felony counts, including forgery and conspiracy to commit forgery, on accusation that they had signed documents attesting falsely that they were Michigan's duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, and each of the defendants knew it, Attorney General Dana Nessel a Democrat said in announcing the charges. They carried out these actions with the hope and belief that the electoral votes of Michigan's 2020 election would be awarded to the candidate of their choosing instead of the candidate that Michigan voters actually chose. The charges, the first against false electors in a sprawling scheme to hand the electoral votes of swing states won by Joseph R. Biden, Jr., to Mr. Trump, add to the rapidly developing legal peril for Mr. Trump and those who helped him try to overturn the results of the election. They came the same day that Mr. Trump said federal prosecutors had told him that he is a target of their investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol and other schemes he and his allies used to try to maintain power. Those charged in Michigan included Ms. Sean Mad- Maddock, 55, who went on to serve for a time as the co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Ms. Maddock, who has close ties to former President Donald J. Trump and is married to Matt Maddock, a state representative, accused Ms. Nessel of a personal vendetta. This is part of a national coordinated effort to stop Mr. Trump, she added. Wright Blake, a lawyer representing Mayor Rodriguez, 64, another elector who is a lawyer, said in an interview, I'm very disappointed in the attorney general's office. This is all political, obviously. If they want to charge my client, how come they didn't charge Trump? and the Trump lawyers that he sent here to discuss with the delegates what to do. While a similar investigation in Atlanta has pulled in witnesses from across the country and has led to legal battles with Mr. Trump himself, thus far the Michigan inquiry has focused on residents of the state. It is not clear whether that will remain the case. This remains an ongoing investigation, and our department has not ruled out potential charges against additional defendants, Ms. Nessel said Tuesday of her inquiry. Others among the electors who were charged included Kathy Bearden, 70, a member of the Republican National Committee, and Marion Sheridan, 69, the state party's grassroots vice chair. Neither responded to requests for comment. Documents released Tuesday by Ms. Nessel's office laid out a scheme in which many of the Trump electors convened at the Republican Party state headquarters on December 14, 2020, 
after being turned away from the state capitol. The real electors, who were certified by the Board of State Canvassers, did meet at the capitol, as required by law. Yet the Republican group falsely claimed they were the rightful electors and had met at the capitol. Michigan is one of three states, along with Georgia and Arizona, where there are ongoing investigations relating to the use of false electors by the Trump team in 2020. Another investigation in Michigan being conducted by a special prosecutor concerns a network of right-wing activists, including Matthew DiPerno, a Republican who ran unsuccessfully against Ms. Nessel last year, who are suspected of breaching voting machines in search of evidence of election fraud. In total, allies of Mr. Trump pushed to convene slates of fake electors in seven swing states that Mr. Biden won. The plan was to create the illusion of a dispute over which slates, the fake Trump ones or the real Biden ones, were legitimate, and to have members of Congress and Vice President Mike Pence certify the fake Trump slates, thus handing the election to Mr. Trump in defiance of the will of voters. Ms. Nessel began investigating the matter in early 2021, but referred it to the Justice Department in January 2022. She said at the time that while there were grounds to being criminal charges, because there appeared to be a coordinated effort between the Republican parties in various different states, we think this is a matter that is best investigated and potentially prosecuted by the feds. A few months later, she posted on Twitter, If we don't hold the people involved in the alternate elector scheme accountable, there is literally nothing to stop them from doing this again because there will have been no repercussions for it. But by January of this year, federal prosecutors had taken no apparent action. So Ms. Nessel announced that we are reopening our investigation because I don't know what the federal government plans to do. In recent weeks, investigators have collected evidence and interviewed witnesses who have been affiliated with the state party. Since Ms. Nessel reopened her investigation, federal prosecutors have become increasingly active in Michigan and appear to be treading similar ground. A number of election officials and lawmakers, including the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, have reportedly been interviewed in recent months by federal prosecutors. But the federal and Michigan investigations are part of a reckoning over the conspiracy theories Mr. Trump and his allies have promoted about the election. We'll take a brief detour from the front page now and go to a continuingly breaking story. And the title of this article is North Korea Detains U.S. Soldier After Unauthorized Border Crossing. This article appears inside of Section A. An American soldier who crossed into North Korea without authorization on Tuesday has been taken into custody by North Korean authorities, according to U.S. officials. The service member, 
entered North Korea during a tour of Panmunjom, or the Joint Security Area, which straddles the border between North and South Korea, becoming the latest U.S. citizen to be detained by the isolated Communist Party. The soldier, who was identified as Private Travis T. King, had recently been released from a South Korean prison after being arrested on assault charges, according to a U.S. official familiar with the situation who was not authorized to speak publicly. U.S. military officials had planned to send him to Fort Bliss, Texas, to face additional disciplinary actions. The service member was escorted to the airport, but instead of boarding his plane, he joined a tour of the joint security area where he broke away from the group and ran across the border, the official said, without giving further details on how the soldier was able to join the tour. The tour guides chased after him but did not catch him, and he was seen being taken into custody by North Korean soldiers. It was unclear if Private King planned to defect. The soldier willfully and without authorization crossed the military demarcation line into the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, said Colonel Isaac Taylor a public affairs officer for the U.S. Forces Korea. U.S. officials are working with their counterparts in the North Korean military to resolve the incident, Colonel Taylor added. The Joint Security Area, also known as Panmunjom, is a village of 800 yards by 400 yards, a collection of buildings clustered around three iconic blue-painted shelters about 30 miles south of Seoul. It was created as part of the 1953 armistice that halted the Korean War 70 years ago next week and is the sole point of contact on the approximately 150-mile-long demilitarized zone that separates the two Koreas. The zone is overseen by the North Korean People's Army and the UN Command's Military Armistice Commission. The three blue structures were built as meeting sites for officials between different governments, with half of each building inside North Korea and half inside South Korea. The militaries of both nations, which are still officially at war, have guards posted on their ends of the buildings and on their respective sides of the border. Tour groups of foreigners are brought into the central building half of which belongs to each side of the border. Inside that structure, known as T2, tourists can step over onto the North Korean side and take photos, often with North Korean guards standing in the background. Outside the buildings, a concrete strip on the ground demarcates the border. In June 2019, President Donald J. Trump stepped across the border at Panmunjom and walked 20 paces to the base of a building in North Korea to greet Kim Jong-un, the country's leader. Mr. Trump was the first American president to set foot in North Korea. The United States and North Korea do not have formal dip diplomatic relations, and U.S. interests in the country are represented by the Swedish embassy there. Matthew Miller, a State Department spokesman, said the department had not been in touch with North Korea 
but that the Pentagon had tried to make contact. It is our understanding that the Pentagon has reached out to their counterparts in North Korea, he said. They are the lead agency, and I will defer to them to comment on the nature of those contacts. During a news conference on Tuesday, Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III said the U.S. military was closely monitoring and investigating the situation and working to notify the soldiers next of kin. I'm absolutely foremost concerned about the welfare of our troop, Mr. Austin said. The American-led United Nations Command first announced the border crossing on Tuesday in an online post. Both the UN Command and the North Korean People's Army keep duty officers at Panmunjom. The soldier was the first known American held in North Korean custody since Bruce Byron Lawrence was detained for a month after illegally entering the country from China in 2018. The American student Otto F. Warmbier was arrested in Pyongyang, North Korea's capital, in 2016, accused of trying to steal a propaganda poster from the wall of his hotel. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. After being held for 17 months in North Korea, Mr. Warmbier, then 20, was flown to Ohio, his home state, in a coma in June 2017. He died a week later. Although the border area is strewn with landmines and guarded by lawyers of tall barbed wire fences, people from both Koreas have crossed the DMZ, as have several American soldiers stationed in the South. In 2014, an unidentified American was detained on a riverbank near the South's western border with North Korea after trying to swim into the North. After he was apprehended, he told South Korean officials that he had intended to go to North Korea to meet Mr. Kim. Before he entered North Korea from China, Mr. Lawrence was also detained by South Korean soldiers while approaching the inter-Korean border. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. But defections through Panmunjom are highly unusual. A South Korean soldier assigned to the Joint Security Area defected to the North in 1991. In 2017, a North Korean soldier ran across Panmunjom through a hail of bullets from fellow communist soldiers trying to stop him. The defector survived multiple bullet wounds. 
Relations between North Korea and the United States have deteriorated in recent years as the North has ramped up its nuclear and missile programs, defying international sanctions. Early Wednesday on the North Korean peninsula, North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast, according to the South Korean military. The North Korean government had expressed anger for days over the Pentagon's plan to send to South Korea a nuclear-armed submarine. North Korea fired its newest intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-18, last Wednesday. The fate of American citizens held in North Korea is not always clear. Some are voluntarily released, while others have faced criminal charges of committing hostile acts and have been freed only when prominent American figures like former President Bill Clinton have visited Pyongyang to request their release. North Korea released three American detainees in 2018, after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited Pyongyang to pick them up. North Korea treated their release as a sign of goodwill and a merciful diplomatic gesture aimed at facilitating Mr. Kim's summit meeting with Mr. Trump in Singapore later that year. We'll return now to the front page of the New York Times and this article that appears there. Phoenix breaks heat records set in 1974. On Tuesday, Phoenix reached a miserable milestone. It was the first time the city had measured 19 days in a row of 110 degree or more temperatures, busting a record set in 1974. Record broken, the National Weather Service posted on Twitter. As of 11.59 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport has reached 110 degrees Fahrenheit. This is now the 19th straight day with a temperature that reaches or exceeds 110 degrees Fahrenheit, which breaks the previous record of 18 days set back in 1974, nearly 50 years ago. People in the Southwest are used to brutal summers. Phoenix has had plenty of days that soar past 100 degrees. Water mistress spritz patios and neighborhoods and playgrounds clear out in the midday sun. Monsoons usually sweep through with refreshing relief. But this stagnant summer is testing even the hardiest and putting many more people at risk. It just feels awful, said Maisie Christensen, 20, a scooper at Sweet Republic, an ice cream shop in Phoenix. Business at the store has been steady. On blistering days, customers tend to go for fruity flavors like watermelon sorbet and pineapple whip. But they mostly visit the shop later in the day when the sun is not so scorching. The temperatures are very extreme, said Matt. Matt Salerno, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Phoenix. We're talking 10 degrees above where they normally are. The city set another heat record on Monday, eight consecutive days in which the overnight temperature never dipped below 90 degrees. 
The heat is particularly brutal and inescapable at the sprawling homeless encampment in central Phoenix known as The Zone. Phoenix is slowly clearing tents block by block, but health care workers in The Zone say that regular counts show the number of people living there has remained the same or even grown. There are barely any trees, and this July, people have been suffering second-degree burns after they pass out or fall asleep on the hot asphalt and sidewalks. There are few sources of running water other than donated bottles and portable wash stations. So a spigot outside a shelter often has a line of people pouring water over their heads and filling up five-gallon jugs to take back to their tents. It just sucks it right out of you, said Charles Outen, 49, who said he had spent the summer hopscotching between cooling centers during the day and sleeping at local churches at night to avoid the heat. For many in the city and across the southwest, the searing temperatures have come with little relief. The monsoon season, which typically brings cooling thunderstorms to the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico, is arriving later than usual. And all across the south, the heat has been not only strikingly severe, but also abnormally persistent. This week, hot and humid conditions were expected to worsen along the Gulf Coast and throughout the southeast, according to the Weather Service. Across the country, about 100 million people are under heat alerts. And even parts of northern states, including Michigan, New York, and Vermont, have recently broken daily temperature records. In Palm Springs, California, a desert resort city in Southern California, Residents and tourists have been trying their best to keep cool in temperatures that spiked to around 115 degrees. Zach Stone, who lives in his car, says the heat inside the vehicle is unbearable. To find relief, he came to the DeMuth Community Center, where he worked on a puzzle in the gym. They have bread and water, and there's vending machines and bathrooms, and that's a huge convenience, he said. The heat can be especially brutal for those who were already dealing with medical conditions like cancer, diabetes, drug addiction, and heart disease, said Dr. Gerald Moser, a co-director of the emergency department at the Tucson Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona, where the heat wave has brought in more patients than usual. Temperatures are forecast to exceed 110 degrees there this week. People without shelter or access to water are especially at risk, Dr. Moser said, adding that many of them wind up in emergency rooms after being found incapacitated on the ground, sometimes with secondary burns from their scorching sidewalks. We see people passing out from full-blown heat stroke with a core body temperature of 104 degrees, he said. The persistent heat in the southwest is the result of a high-pressure system that has been parked over the region for weeks. It has been particularly stubborn this year, delaying cooling storms. The monsoon schedule varies from one year to the next, 
said Michael Crimmins, an environmental science professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So while it is not yet clear whether climate change is to blame for the heat wave's persistence, it has very likely made the daily high temperatures even higher. In the Phoenix area, there have been 12 reported heat-related deaths this year through mid-June and 40 more open cases where heat is being investigated as a factor, according to the medical examiner in Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix. In Texas, the heat this year has prompted cotton plants, especially in the southern parts of the state, to bloom early. It's running ahead of time, which is not good, said Josh McGinty, an agronomist with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service, whose office in Corpus Christi is bordered by cotton fields. Normally, during this time of year, a few bulbs would be starting to unfurl. Instead, Mr. McGinty said, every fruit on the plant is open and they shouldn't be. The heat is just shutting the plants down. They're in survival mode at this point. But even that, he said, is better than last year when the cotton crop suffered even more because of droughts. Further east, residents of southern states are bracing for a long spell of hot and muggy days. Heat indexes, which measure how hot it feels outside while accounting for both temperature and humidity, were expected to surpass 100 degrees this week in many cities including Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, and Tallahassee, Florida. On Monday afternoon, Ralph Horton was driving east along Interstate 20 to his home, Tallapoosa, Georgia, when he stopped in Vicksburg, Mississippi for a break. He was traveling from Texas, where he had spent a few days. Oh my gosh, it was hot, he said. On Monday, he stood on an overlook with a view of the Mississippi River, anticipating a different kind of heat, the kind that is oppressive even when the temperatures don't reach triple, triple digits. The humidity is a killer in this part of the country, Mr. Horton said. The spot where he stood was already under a heat advisory with heat indexes forecast to reach around 110 degrees on Tuesday. And now to an um, international-related article. This one is titled, A Current War Collides with the Past, Remnants of World War II in Ukraine. Clamoring over boulders, past old tires, and shellfish-encrusted scrap metal, Alexander Shaklikov ventured onto the dry bed of a vast reservoir. Out in this wasteland rested a haunting remainder of long-ago battles on this same swath of southern Ukraine. A swastika, chipped into a rock, had emerged from the receding water. The year 1942 was written next to it. History is repeating itself, Mr. Shakalov, a tank driver on leave from the Ukrainian army said of the World War II-era carving. He noted the timing. The swastika had become visible because of, more re of a more recent act of war, the explosion at the Kakovka Dam in June 
that drained a reservoir the size of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. We are fighting this war on the same landscape and with the same weapons as those used in World War II, he said, evoking the heavy artillery and tanks that still shape the course of a land war. World War II has been an ideological battlefield in today's war in Ukraine, with Russia falsely calling Kiev's government neo-fascist and citing that as the rationale for its invasion. The country's military history is cropping up on the actual battlefield as well, not just with artifacts in the soil, but in the lessons Ukraine has learned from a war fought long ago. Terrain and rivers have often channeled the armies of today into the sites of some of the fiercest fighting in World War II, when German and Soviet troops swept over the valleys and the expanses of wide-open plains. Indeed, key battles have coincided so closely with the sites of World War II fighting, the Ukrainian military says, that soldiers have found themselves taking cover in 80-year-old concrete bunkers outside Kiev. They have discovered the bones of German soldiers and Nazi bullet casings in the dirt they removed from trenches in the south. World War II reached what is now Ukraine in 1939 with a Soviet invasion into territory then controlled by Poland in western Ukraine at a time when the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were in a military alliance. When that pact broke down in 1941, Germany attacked Ukraine from west to east. As the invasion began, factions of pro-independence Ukrainians fought with... What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The Germans, while other Ukrainians fought with the Red Army against the Nazis. The tide of war changed in 1943 with the German defeat of the Battle of Stalingrad and the Red Army then fought the Nazis in Ukraine moving westward. One of Germany's successes early on came in the Battle of the Azov Sea in 1941 when its troops advanced from Zaporizhia to Melitopol over the course of three weeks. Nazi forces covered this ground to move into position to attack Crimea and surround Red Army soldiers in the Kherson region. Ukraine is now echoing that World War II offensive, fighting at sites southeast of Zaporizhia, in which the Ukrainian military calls their Merlitopol direction. The strategic goal is the same as it was eight decades ago to isolate enemy soldiers in the Kherson region and threaten Crimea. But Ukrainian troops are moving far more slowly 
having gained only a few miles in more than a month. Historical parallels, unfortunately, or happily, keep coming to the surface, said Vasil Pavlov, an advisor to Ukraine's general headquarters who has closely studied the similarities of the two wars. Strategically, he said, Ukraine's generals most directly drew on World War II history in devising a defense of the capital, Kiev, last year. In the opening days of the war, the Russian army advanced from Belarus toward the floodplain of the Irpin River, only to find that the Ukrainians had blown up a dam and inundated a vast area of fields blocking the advance. It was a reprisal of a Soviet trick in 1941 when Moscow blew up an Irpin River dam to block a German tank assault, Mr. Pavlov said. Generals always prepare to fight the last war, he said. But the Russian generals didn't even prepare to fight the last war. German troops eventually captured Kiev in 1941. The Russians fought for a month in the suburbs last spring and withdrew. When the current war turned from Kiev to the east, it similarly retraced the battles of the Second World War. Then, as today, the looping course of the Seversky Donetsk River became a front line, with its high banks and swampy shores serving as natural barriers as rival armies fought over the cities and towns alongside them. In World War II, the river formed a portion of the so-called Mayas Line, a defensive position the Nazis built to slow Soviet counterattacks after the Battle of Stalingrad. In the current war, various cities and villages along the Seversky Donetsk have, bec- have come into play. Ukrainian forces used the river's high bluffs and floodplains, for example, to attempt a defense of the city of Lychansk ultimately unsuccessful, and to prevent a Russian crossing near the town of Belarovrika. Both wars left riverside towns and villages in ruins. The current fighting has also damaged with shrapnel pox monuments erected to commemorate the World War II fighting. The village of Staryi Saltev in the Kharkiv region was touched by both wars and was largely destroyed each time. Lydia Pechenetska, 92, who has lived in the village her entire life, recalled that in both conflicts the fighting was largely defined by the artillery shells flying over the river at enemy soldiers holding up in the village. For civilians, the experiences were similar, cowering in basements and root cellars. It was horrible, Miss Pechernetska said in an interview this spring. The Ukrainian counteroffensive south of the city of Zaporizhia is, Mr. Pavlov said, a direct analogy to the German offensive in September 1941. The objectives were similar, to move across the plains, cut supply lines to Russian troops on the eastern bank of the Dnipro, and move into position to threaten the isthmus of the Crimean Peninsula. But the parallels go only so far. In World War II, 
the Red Army did not have time to fortify defensive lines on the plains. The Germans quickly advanced to the Azov Sea, surrounding tens of thousands of Soviet troops in a pocket to the north. This time, the Russians have had months to dig in. As a result, Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled in the face of formidable fortifications of minefields, trenches, and bunkers. In other ways, too, the fighting is distinct. The Nazi and Soviet armies fought across Ukraine, moving perpendicular to the north-to-south flow of the main rivers. Ukraine in the counteroffensive is mostly moving parallel to the rivers, Providing at least one military advantage, it does not have to undertake many perilous water crossings. In the winter of 1943-44, the Soviet Union lost waves of soldiers in an east-to-west crossing of the Dnipro River. Some of the bodies were found decades later by a Ukrainian non-governmental group, Memory and Glory, which searched for World War II dead from both sides to provide dignified burials. Since its founding in 2007, it says, the group has found more than 500 remains of soldiers who fought in World War II in Ukraine. Last year, Memory and Glory members joined the Ukrainian army to search battlefields for soldiers reported missing in action. It has found more than 200 bodies from the current war often in the same sites where World War II dead were found, said Leonid Ignatyev, the director. When you dig into a trench looking for bodies of soldiers recently killed, he said, you find a trench from World War II. Near the town of Norigaminsky in the Kherson region, the group recently searched for a Ukrainian soldier who had gone missing in action. Instead, they found the bones of a German soldier, Mr. Ignatiev said. The remains were sent for burial in a cemetery for German war dead in Ukraine. The high ground, the places for defense, they are all the same, Mr. Ignatiev said. Zaporizhia, a sprawling industrial city on the shore of the disappearing Kakarovka Reservoir, was occupied by Nazi forces in World War II, and is a frontline city today where air sirens wail multiple times a day and Russian missiles occasionally streak in and explode. But when the water receded from the city's lakefront embankment after the dam burst, it was unexploded munitions from the past that posed the gravest, gravest danger. Ukraine's emergency services said the sandbars and new islands emerging from the reservoir turned out to be surprisingly cluttered with explosive objects from World War II. Demining crews have found and removed World War II aviation bombs, the service said. Mr. Shakilov, the tank driver whose home is a short walk from shore, fought in the opening days of Ukraine's counteroffensive in fields to the southeast of the city. After his tank hit a mine, he was given leave from his unit, returned home, and began exploring the dry lake bed. Finding the swastika emerging from the water, he said, didn't surprise me at all. The wars are separated by decades, but the landscape hasn't changed, he said.
So now with our remaining time, we'll turn to the opinion page and letters to the editor. There are a number of letters here that the New York Times labels as the 2024 issue, Democracy or Autocracy. This first letter is from John T. Dillon of West Caldwell, New Jersey. To the editor regarding Trump and allies seeking vast increase of his power. Front page, July 17. Donald Trump plans, if elected next year, to revamp the administrative state, also known to conservatives as the deep state, also known to Mr. Trump as the warmongers, the globalists, the communists, Marxists, and fascists, the political class that hates our country. Once revamped, this new state would be much more under Mr. Trump's control without those pesky independent agencies that are beyond his reach. We had a state like that in the past headed by King George III and decided that we did not like it, which is why we have what we quaintly, which are quaintly known as checks and balances, designed precisely to prevent the president from amassing too much power. Are we really ready to replace Hail to the Chief with Hail to the King? Our next letter is from Ben Myers of Harvard, Massachusetts. To the editor. If someone told Donald Trump that he is merely a tool of the Republican Party, he would be livid. But tool he is, and also a tool of the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, and all the billionaires who stand to gain from long-standing Republican tenets if implemented. Going back to the Nixon era, conservative Republicans would often say the best government is the least government. During several Republican administrations, there have been efforts to reduce the size and the role of government. They have sought a smaller IRS so that earnings of wealthy people would not be audited and reduced regulation by federal agencies, maximizing the profits of businesses that would otherwise be regulated at the expense of the health and safety of American citizens. Mr. Trump is a useful tool to the Republicans who hope he can normalize discussion about a reduced government in a strongman executive branch. Even if another Republican is elected president in 2024, he will follow the Republican blueprint for the executive branch and we can kiss our seminal experiment in democracy goodbye. The following letter is from Bert Ely of Alexandria, Virginia. To the editor, those supporters of broader powers for a re-elected President Donald Trump should keep in mind the proverb, what goes around comes around. If Republicans are successful in broadening a president's executive branch powers, those powers could just as easily be used and abused by a future liberal Democratic president. Now this letter from Brian Kelly of Rockville Center, New York. To the editor, Donald Trump has said, I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. This is as clear a statement of intent as Mussolini's in 1936. We do not argue with those who disagree with us. We destroy them. The common goal is to establish an autocracy. With his militarized acolytes, medium allies, and anti-regulation donors, Mr. Trump presents a clear threat to democracy, rule of law, and any hope for equity or equality. 
This is the 2024 issue, democracy or autocracy. And now this letter from Allison Goodwin Schiff of New York to the editor. If people weren't scared before, they should be after reading this, how fascism comes to the United States. Know what must be done. Save our democracy. Vote. And thus we conclude the reading of the New York Times for today. Your reader has been Mary Sue Hoskins. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at area code 859-422-6390. Thanks for listening, and now, please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. In the ongoing federal investigation into the January 6th uprising being conducted by the special counsel Jack Smith, such notices are almost always followed by an actual indictment. This is huge news. It felt like a lock that the Justice Department would indict Mr. Trump for his flagrant mishandling of classified documents, but it was far from certain that the evidence would be deemed compelling enough to indict him on charges related to January the 6th. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.